All right, friends, we're ready to start. Good to see you all again. Seems like a long time. Sure does. Yeah, let's have a word of prayer. I was thinking about we're missing some of our faithful clients, uh, Ron and Sue Biggs, Ron, and, uh, and Ken and Emily Rapp. Uh, I heard Ken, would, last report of Ken was doing pretty good. Um, seemed like he was doing well and... Uh, those, uh, so let's, let's pray for them and then we'll begin. Father, thank you for this time together. Again, we can continue looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, we're always thankful for uh, the opportunities we have to study your word and, and uh, seek to understand how it applies to our lives, our situations. And we pray that as we do, it will... Uh, bring about sanctification, growth in our own lives. It'll teach us and rebuke us where it's necessary. Uh, we do pray for our, our dear brothers, Ken and Ron, and uh, their serious situations. We ask for your grace in their lives and for healing for their bodies. Thankful for their testimonies for Christ over the years and and we just pray that uh, you will give them uh, grace in the days ahead and bless their, help their wives as they uh, minister to them and others who are helping and working with them. So bless our time tonight, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we are uh, in the notes here. Uh, I've, we actually got into chapter 7 last time. But that was a long time ago. Are we going back to the first book? No, we're going to seven, chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter seven, that's where the new notes start, okay. chapter 7. But I just meant that last time um, we got to about 7.14 or so, but then I got sick. I was in the hospital for a few days and uh, missed a couple weeks. So Dr. Snowberger spoke right in my place. Did he have notes? Did he pass out any notes? Do you remember? Yeah. He did? He didn't, he didn't do that. He didn't go. To no, but he just had notes on things? Okay. Yeah. Somebody was asking me about the notes, and I, I didn't know um, if he had notes or not. But anyway, we got into chapter 7, verse uh, last time. So where's, do you have the new book? It should start at chapter 7. Well, okay, but I mean, okay, that's just, that's just summarizing where we, you know, it starts with Roman number 1, let me see. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly, no, no, that's wrong, you got the wrong book. Yeah, that's the same exact, it's my first book. Is that what was over there? Yeah, well, I got you. So does anybody have the new ones? I do. Yeah, they were on the top. So that's why I think there were still some old ones left on the bottom that got. 
Now, do they have them in the ministry? The no, they were. They're supposed to be. Okay. Then I won't go well, I see. They might be. You know. Maybe I have more than one here. Yeah, you can go look in the office, but I got look and see if there's any in the office. Yeah. Yeah, we can look at chapter seven in those books anyway. Do all of them start there? No, I understand, but. Uh, that's not the correct notes. So somebody, <laughs> I, I thought I, yeah, we want to look at chapter seven, so that might be page 40, but uh, yeah, so all of them are like that then, huh? That's very strange. Wow. <laughs> well, when they were, they were, they were ran, they were run off, ran off, and I went over and picked them up, and brought them over here. Um, but I, I guess I didn't look inside. I just assumed since they were in the print room, they were the new notes, you know. And I guess, I guess I didn't look uh, at them apparently. So I'll have we'll have to check that out. Sorry about that. But anyway, we do have since we the the old notes ran through chapter nine anyway. Seven, eight, and they are—they are there, huh? Okay. Okay. They should start. The ones with the bigger ring, yeah. The ones with the bigger ring. Yeah, pass them out if you would to everybody. And if you don't want the old ones, if you—if you don't want, you can have the old ones if you want. But if you don't want them, if you don't need them, if you already got them. Well, mine starts here. Seven, one. That That's right. You got a correct one. I don't know how you got a correct one. This should be a new one. That's the one. That's it. Yeah. All right. What do y'all got? I got a new one now. Okay. Did you get a new one? Everybody get a new one? Yeah, the big binder is a new one. Sorry about that. Uh, you know, this sounds like the church at Corinth with all this confusion. <laughs> I'm glad we got Apostle Bill here to figure this out. <laughs> so the old notes ran through chapter 9, and I had hoped to, in those last two weeks, get further along, you know, but but I wasn't here. So I decided since I'd only got through 14, it's kind of hard to start right there at 14. So I just want to review a little bit the beginning, you know, chapter 7. And the good thing about 1 Corinthians here is you can start at chapter 7. You can start at different places in the book. And it's not like, you know, you can't just start in Romans 4, uh, because you'd miss, you'd miss what Romans, what's in Romans 4 depends on Romans 3, and what's in Romans 3 depends on Romans 2. It's, it's just a logical thing here. But these are just almost like separate epistles in a way, because, you know, in chapters 1 through 4, Paul is dealing with this problem of 
divisions in the church, and then he picks up on new topics in chapter 5 and chapter 6, and now a totally new one in chapter 7. So we can, you know, you don't have to have remembered everything in chapters 1 through 6 in order to understand what's going on in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, as we note here in the notes, uh, Paul is dealing here uh, with a, he's responding to a letter that he got from the church. Now we noticed last semester that Paul had other communication from the church. People had come over to Ephesus. He's, he's in the city of Ephesus, which is on the, the west coast of modern Turkey. And uh, he is, he's, so people have come over uh, from Corinth in modern day Greece over to Turkey, over to, to Ephesus, and they've told him things. And he's had people, he's had communication and so forth. But now he, has, he wants to respond to this official letter. And so as we note here, chapter 7, verse 1 begins with, now for the matters you wrote about. And the only thing I note here is, there's some de debate about exactly what, what is the Corinthians' attitude and what is Paul's attitude. Sometimes we might think that, well, they, here's, a, here's these people say, hey, Paul, we've got some issues, you know, with, uh, with uh, we've got some problems, help us out. And that may be it, but it's more likely that there is some disagreement too. You know, Paul, you said this, but we're, <laughs> we're not so sure about, you know, they have some differences of opinion with the Apostle Paul. So the exchange is not maybe as friendly as it could be. Uh, uh, they're, they're asking, you know, rather than saying, uh, what should we do? They might be saying, why can't we? You know, why can't we do this? And so forth. And the first issue is related to marriage and problems related to marriage. And... Um, as I notice here in this particular section, this, uh, this passage is uh, sometimes, I think, misinterpreted pretty greatly because it's conditioned by a particular set of circumstances in Corinth. Now, later on, when he gets to uh, chapter, when he gets to uh, the latter part of the chapter, he'll talk about the present distress and he'll say, you know, this is what you should do because of the present distress. There's some sort of problem in Corinth. Uh, we don't know exactly what it is. There's something that's in the, in, the, in the city, in the culture, in the history. Now, when people look back at the historical records, we know there was a tremendous famine at that time that was upsetting everything. You know, it's like our, our thing, you know. You know, COVID changed everything. You know, we might say, okay... Because of COVID, we don't want you to come to church. We want you to watch the, the live stream, you know. Well, we don't, we, don't, we don't say, okay, because of COVID, now that COVID's over, you can just watch the live stream for the rest of your life, you know. No, we don't, we don't say that. And some of the things that are said in here, we have to remember, are, are temporary and for the church at Corinth. Particularly some of the things he says about marriage. And he'll say in here, for instance, that, you know, if you're, if you're not married, then the best thing for right now is to stay single. Now, the Catholic Church picks up a lot of this stuff and has elevated the priesthood and celibacy to a higher state of spirituality based on some stuff in here. 
But you, you can't take this stuff forever because if Paul says, if you're not married, stay as you are, you know, well then there's no population. <laughs> we're we're going to die on the face of the earth, you know. I mean, if we're not, if we're not going to reproduce, you know, you just can't stop reproducing. So that doesn't work, you know, but for the present time. So just remember that when we go through this, we have to remember that the, what some of the stuff Paul says here, and I'll mention it again and again, is conditioned by a particular set of special circumstances that are happening at Corinth. Now, one of the things that, that is uh, particularly uh, at issue here is that um, the Corinthians seem to have developed a particular um, uh, issue with related to sex within marriage. And uh, in chapter 7, verse 1, we're looking here at behavior within marriage. I'm just kind of summarizing this kind of stuff. They have this slogan. Notice it's in quotation marks in the, in the NIV, which is very good. Now for the matters you wrote about, quote, this is the Corinthian position. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, exactly why they would say that sort of thing is a little difficult to understand. Um, um, we don't know exactly why they would, would say something like that. Um, some people say, well, you know, Paul told us in the previous, he's told us uh, previously, told us, you know, to abstain from sexual immorality you know, and all these kinds of things. Maybe it'd be better off just to abstain from sexual intercourse at all. Uh, we're, we're people of the Spirit, uh, you know, ultimately in heaven. They won't marry or given in marriage. Uh, you know, we'll be like the angels or something, you know. Um, so um, it could be that, that some, this is their position. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It could be that uh, they're suggesting that maybe we should abstain from sexual intercourse in marriage, and if men have a sexual need, they can go to prostitutes. And remember, I explained last time that in the ancient world, in the Roman world, um, it, was, it was accepted for married men to have sex outside of marriage. It was just, there was no condemnation of that. It was expected. If they wanted to, they could. They could with slaves, or they could go to prostitutes. It, just, it was just perfectly acceptable. Of course, that's not acceptable in the Christian world, of course. But So in chapters, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, that heading says, Marital celibacy is not to be practiced. For some reason, they're arguing for marital celibacy. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with, uh, with a woman. Um, I said here, their position might have been, since you, you, Paul, are unmarried or not actively seeking marriage, and since you have commanded us in your previous letter to abstain from sexual morality, is it not that one is better off not to have sexual intercourse at all? We're trying to make sense of how they could come up with this position uh, that we see here in chapter 7, verse 1. But Paul says in response to that, uh, but since sexual morality, verse 2, is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Uh, 
So Paul is saying no to their slogan, that's not allowable. And he says in verses 3 through 7, I mentioned in B here, marriage involves physical obligations binding on both husband and wife. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body but yields to her husband the same way the husband does not have authority. So Paul is saying no, that's not how marriage works and that's not how uh, the sexual relationship in marriage works. Um, so, so he is uh, uh, arguing against this position that, uh, that, that, that they, are, they have, they have con- come up with here, which obviously seems very uh, strange. Now, he does say in verse 5, Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent, and for a time that you may devote yourselves for prayer. Then come together again so Satan will not tempt you for your lack of self-control. I say this is a concession, not as command. So uh, Paul, um, Paul in verses 5 and 6, he, he prohibits uh, sexual abstinence within marriage because this can lead to extramarital activity. Uh, one partner is tempted to commit immorality because of Satan and so forth. But he makes a concession, except perhaps, he says, you know, there could be times when this might be true may you, may, because you may devote yourselves for prayer. I think this is just one example. There could be other examples. One partner's ill, uh, illness. It could be old age. There could be physical difficulty. There, there could be a number of reasons that this, you know, that, that wouldn't hold true. Uh, but that's the normal relationship in a marriage is what Paul is saying, not what you're saying, not abstinence within marriage. That would be, sexual abstinence would not be the normal condition. There are, there are exceptions to that. He, he concedes their point there at one point. He says, yes, there are, there are some exceptions to that. Um, he says in verse 7, though, I wish that all of you were as I am, that each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that gift. Now, uh, so Paul says here, um, um, apparently he has this gift um, of self-control. He says back in verse 5, Come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because your lack of self-control. I wish that all were as I am, but each one has your gift from God. One has this gift and another. So Paul says uh, he has this gift of self-control. He, he does not find himself, at least at this time, in need of sexual fulfillment. He's able to live without that, and so he is not seeking a marriage partner or anything like that. Um, but he says not everybody has that gift. Most people don't have that gift of, of self-control. Um, as I say here, um, uh, under verse 7, it's often said that Paul here is referring to his own gift of celibacy. And Merriam-Webster defines celibacy as the state of not being married or the abstention from sexual intercourse, abstention by vow from marriage. But this definition don't don't accurately describe the gift Paul is referencing, which is self-control. 
verse 5, also control themselves, verse 9, he says, if, if they cannot control themselves, sexually control yourself. Um, this gift of freedom from the desire or need of, for sexual fulfillment made it possible for Paul to live without marriage. All those who are not married must, according to Scripture, remain celibate in the sense of abstaining from sexual intercourse whether or not they have what we may call the true gift of celibacy, freedom from the desire or fulfillment of sexual uh, fulfillment. There is, a gift, there is no gift per se of singleness in this passage, though it's easier to remain so if one has Paul's gift. Nevertheless, single people must remain celibate whether they have the gift or not. So that's just one of my hobby horses I get on because um, there is a whole belief system, books written about the gift of singleness, which I think, to use a theological term, is bunk. But I don't think there's any gift of singleness. There's the gift of self-control. Now, it's true that in God's sovereign will, some people will not be married. They just won't be married. It just won't be God's uh, sovereign will that, they, that they're married. And that's just the way it is. Um, but there is, no, there is no a gift that says, okay, I've got this gift and God you know, wants me to be single because I have some kind of gift or something. I have some sort of gift of singleness. And you know, it's, it's, it, that's, it's, that, there's just nothing like that. There's a gift of self-control which people who have that, uh, if they don't want to get married, that's very helpful for them. But, you know, as I say, even if you don't have the gift, and most people don't, if you're single, you have to remain, uh, you have to practice, uh, you, you can't be sexually immoral. Um, so, um, as I say here, Paul is able to agree with this one instance with the Corinthians' position that it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's not true for the married, but it's true for those who have the gift to be completely free from any need of sexual fulfillment. Um, Paul, you know, had this gift, and so he could concentrate on the work of the ministry. He wasn't distracted by sexual desires or anything. It's not a higher status, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches, or anything like that. And as we know, just, you know, Priests have to be, are supposed to be celibate, but historically they've never been. You know, historically it's, it's, it just hasn't been the case, and it's still a great problem today for them also, you know, in the church. Uh, so this, the idea of celibacy in the church is just an unbiblical, ungodly concept, you know. It's just not the... Do you think it would ever change? Huh? Do you think it would ever change? You know, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. You'd think it would... You would think it would eventually, and uh, they have accepted, you know, married men who are already married into the priesthood. They did make that change that they some married men um, can come into the priesthood. But this, this, you know, it's hard to say that because they they had such a long history of this, you know. Dogmatic. Yeah, they're so dogmatic. You know, I've I've often thought that they would. Because it's hard that you you hear that it's hard to get priests, that it's difficult to get people to come into the priesthood. So you'd think they would give up on that, and maybe they will one day. Maybe they'll relax some of that, but I don't know. Um, 
But anyway, um, it's obvious, as I, as I said, that most Christians don't have this gift. Um, but if they're single, they must remain sexually, they're commanded to remain sexually pure or marry. Uh, there's only, you know, sexual activity is only biblical inside of marriage. There's no sexual activity outside of marriage, which, you know, Christianity is now totally countercultural. Because <laughs> when I talk to young people, you know, at different locations, they're all living with their boyfriends or whatever, their girlfriends. And, and when I was growing up, people would be ashamed to admit that, you know. <laughs> but now it's like, that's normal. Why would you do anything else? There's nothing to it, you know. So now we're just totally countercultural. And, uh, and we've had the problem in, in our own church where people will come, they're living together. They don't know what's wrong. <laughs> in fact, they've been told it's the right thing to do, you know. And so when they hear, you know, that, that that's not right, it's, it's a shocking thing to them to hear that that's what the Bible teaches on that subject. Um, so I didn't use my notes here, so let me uh, kind of get up to where we're at here. Uh, widowers and widowers uh, must remain celibate or marry. Marry, he says here. Now the unmarried and widows, I say it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Um, as I mentioned in the notes, this word unmarried, probably here the Greek word probably refers to widowers in this particular case. So this is a case of people who have been married but are not now married. That would be widowers and widows. And he said, you know, it, it's good for them to stay as I am. But verse 9, uh, if they can't control themselves, they should marry. better to marry than to burn with passion. Um, so marriage is the proper alternative for those who are consumed by sexual desire and are sinning. Uh, Paul's not saying that every couple uh, that contemplates sexual sin or is engaging in sexual sin should get married. But Paul is saying, if you can't follow my example as a widow or a widower, you, could, you, could, you should look to marriage rather than engage in sexual sin. So, uh, on the one hand, there was this strange idea at Corinth, and I, I mentioned that present crisis. Because of the present crisis, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. Um, so I, I put these verses here because um, this, as I say, this counsel about, you know, Paul says it's good to remain as you are, that that has to do with this present crisis because, uh, you know, Paul says on the one hand, notice what he says here, to the unmarried, the widows, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But notice 1 Corinthians 5, 14, I counsel the younger widows to marry. Well, that's in direct contradiction to what Paul says here. He just tells the widows, uh, no, remain as you are. Remain like I am. But now he says marry. What, what is it? Well, obviously, in Corinth, we're talking about the present crisis here, and I'll talk more about that as we go along. Uh, so uh, it's, it's, it's a special condition, special situation, and we'll get more into it as we go here. Now, as we get to uh, this next section, 
Divorce is not permissible for unbelievers without biblical grounds. That's kind of my summary here. We're going to get into the divorce and remarriage issue here. Um, I say here in this chapter, Paul addresses both men and women. He addresses the women first, which may suggest the problem is primarily concerned with women, maybe, who were using the slogan, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, so forth, to reject sexual relations with her husband, and arguing for divorce if that won't work. Uh, Paul, anyway, the, he says that what they're arguing here is an unbiblical ground. To the married, verse 10, I say, I give the command, not I but the Lord, a woman must not separate from her husband. Now the married, I say here, are believers. And in 12 through 16, he'll address mixed marriages. Here he's talking about two believers who are married together. To the married, that is, to the believers who are married. And then 12 through 16, a believer and an unbeliever. Now, here he appeals to the authority of Jesus himself because Jesus spoke on this particular question. Uh, as I say here, he'll say later on, this is what I say, not the Lord, because the Lord didn't speak to every situation that Paul encounters here. The Lord only dealt with believers in the sense that everybody he talked to was was a covenant child of Israel. They were all professing to be Israelites and, and part of the community. So you didn't have Jew with Gentile. Jesus didn't deal with a Jew and a Gentile, married each other. He dealt with Jews. Uh, Paul has to deal with, with this situation of a married of a of believer and an unbeliever. Uh, but here he says, the Lord spoke to this particular issue. Uh, a wife must not separate from her husband. Um, now, I mention here in this passage, you have in verse 10 the word, the wife must not separate from her husband in this second paragraph. Uh, and I mentioned that the terms separate and divorce are used synonymously in this passage. Now, that's always a hang-up for people. I understand that. But the two Greek words that are used here are used synonymously in Greek literature outside the Bible for a divorce. Now, the, the problem for us is we have this thing called legal separation. We say, well, she's separated from her husband. You know, that we don't, if, if I say she, she's separated from her husband, we don't think she's divorced. Well, that she's just kind of separated from him. And so we think there's a difference between separation and divorce. But not, not, these, not these Greek words, and not in the ancient world. There was no separation that was not divorce. So it, it's, it gets a little confusing because Paul uses these words interchangeably here, these two Greek words. Uh, and I say they're used inter synonymously. There's no concept of legal separation and so forth. Uh, and you can follow that through. You can see it. I say the verb translated separate in verse 10 is also used in verse 11, but if she does separate, and twice in verse 15, translated leave, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The point to note is that separation produces an unmarried state, but if she does separate, she must remain unmarried. See, If she does separate, she must remain unmarried. So separation produces an unmarried state. So this Greek word separate, korizo, was a technical term for divorce, but it's not in our language. 
separates different from divorce. So it, it always causes confusion here when somebody reads this. They read into this our modern terminology of separation and divorce. But we're all talking about divorce and so forth. And I mentioned that you, in the ancient world, divorce could be legalized by documents, but mostly it just happened. The man could send away his wife. That's the word translated separate. Translated divorce here, I'm sorry. me. Or, you know, either one of them just left the other. Just leave the marriage. And that would be a separation or a divorce. Um, and I said ordinarily when the wife divorces, quote, divorce, she separates from her husband. She leaves him and so forth. Um, so I say in verse, Paul says in verse 11, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. A husband must not divorce his wife. Now, as I say, taken together, this would seem to teach that believers, that believers uh, divorce is not permissible. And if it does happen, remarriage is not allowed because Paul says very clearly, uh, if she does separate, divorce, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. So it seems to suggest here, if you took this, just in this little context here, that uh, there's no divorce among believers, and if they do divorce, they can't remarry. There's no remarriage. But that would be wrong if you thought that. <laughs> uh, so I mentioned here, it's clear from the Old Testament that divorce and remarriage were permitted. I'm not going to try to read all those passages in the Old Testament, but it's very clear in the Old Testament. And Jesus himself permitted divorce. Remember Matthew 5, he says, for porneia, for sexual immorality, divorce is permitted. So Jesus permitted divorce. Jews permitted divorce. And Jews had no concept of divorce that did not allow remarriage. So again, we have this kind of concept in, in people's minds. Christians have it in their minds from this, from this passage right here. Well, okay, maybe divorce is okay, but divorce, remarriage is not allowed. There's, there's no such animal in the Old Testament. Jews didn't know anything about that. I mentioned, I say, Paul disallows divorce in this specific instant because divorce that's being contemplated here is for unbiblical grounds. See, that's the whole point here. A woman is divorcing her husband. A husband is divorcing his wife for unbiblical grounds. If that's true, then, you know, if, if somebody comes in this church, they're a member of this church, and one person divorces the other person, we would say, you're divorced on unbiblical grounds. You have no right to remarriage <coughs> because you divorced on unbiblical grounds. You didn't have an, a biblical divorce. Uh, so I say the woman who initiates the divorce in verse 10, 11 does so on unbiblical grounds until Paul disallows this. He knows it's not based on any biblical grounds. Sexual immorality or later what he talks about in verse 15, desertion as another biblical ground. Um, so Paul's instructions here are brief and pointed because the church presumably already knew the teaching about Jesus on this matter. Um, and again, let me just remind you, in the Greco-Roman world, in the Jewish world, 
there was no category of lawful divorce that did not include remarriage because that's been a position in our Christian world that some pastors have preached, some scholars have preached. It's, it's, it's pretty well rejected today, uh, but it was very popular that, okay, divorce but no remarriage. But, yeah, there, if you get an unbiblical divorce, then their remarriage is not biblical in that case. But So that's the case here. These Corinthians are proposing... Uh, first of all, we're not going to, uh, it's better not to have sex with a marriage. That's wrong. And if that won't work, then let's just divorce. Well, no, you don't have a biblical grounds here for divorce. And so there's no, you, you, if you're going to, if you do this unbiblical thing, you have to remain unmarried. E here, uh, divorce is permissible in mixed marriages when the unsaved partner deserts the marriage. I say Paul continues the discussion of divorce, this time when one partner is a Christian, the other is an unbeliever. Now, in this case, um, the believer cannot initiate the divorce because the believer is married to an unbeliever. That's not grounds for divorce, though often it's presented. People, in the, people will come to it, people in, in churches will say, hey, I'm married to this unbelieving husband and he's terrible, I don't like him, I'm going to divorce him. But that's not a biblical ground because you don't like your unbelieving husband, you know. Uh, that's not sufficient grounds for a divorce. Um, but Paul adds an exception, as we'll see here, that if the unbeliever departs, deserts the marriage, okay, then you're not bound to maintain the marriage. So he says, verse 12, to the rest I say, I say this, I, I am not the Lord, Remember, he says that, as I said, because the Lord didn't speak on a believer and an unbeliever. If a brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Uh, so a Christian cannot divorce because of a mixed marriage. Now, obviously what happened here is you have two people, two pagans, and one of them gets, becomes a Christian. And there you go. One becomes a Christian. And that happens in our world, too. You know, one becomes a Christian, and then uh, you have tension. Um, so, um, as I say here, uh, uh, a, the idea of what we think of as mixed religious marriages in our modern world was generally unknown in the ancient world. It was considered essential that a wife share her husband's basic commitments. Writer Plutarch said, A wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends and in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. Wherefore, it's becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in and to shut the front door tight upon all queer rituals and outlandish superstitions. For with no god do stealthy and secret uh, rites performed by a woman find any favor. Similarly, uh, Jews were only to marry those belonging to their own religion, according to the Old Testament. So uh, here we have a particular situation that didn't you know, rise among pagans particularly because um, the wife was expected to adopt the religion of her husband and so forth and have the same views on that. But here we have 
one becoming a Christian. Um, so Paul says here, you can't initiate the divorce simply because you're married to an unbeliever. Verse 14, for the unbelieving wife, here he gives the grounds, one of the grounds that for, because the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as is, they're holy. Now, as I say here in the notes, I won't read it all, but sanctified does not mean they're saved. They're not saved because of that. But remember, the word sanctified means to set apart. So the most you know, likely explanation of what Paul is saying here is that the, when, when, you're, when one partner is saved, that has a sanctifying influence, hopefully, on the unsaved partner. And, you know, that's happened many times. One partner gets saved, and then the other partner gets saved. Sometimes it takes many years. Sometimes it never happens. There's no promise. But, you know, sometimes one partner gets saved, and that has an influence on the other partner. And it has an influence on the children. And even it does. You know, if, if, if one partner is saved and one partner is not, but they bring the children to church, you know, that's a good thing and so forth. So um, Paul is saying that the believer is not defiled by being married to an unbeliever in any sense, but that the uh, Christian wife could be a, a witness to her husband or the Christian husband could be a, a witness to his wife and so forth. They're under this you know, influence of Christianity, which is a good thing. But verse 15, But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances God has called us to live in peace. I say here, just because one is married to an unbeliever is not grounds for divorce, but now Paul includes an exception. The exception, the believer may not pursue divorce, but if the unbeliever abandons the marriage, let him or her do so. That is, if the unbelieving spouse physically deserts the spouse, because they maybe because they could be because they reject the Christian faith or other reasons. The Christian is no longer obligated to stay married. If the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. That separation refers to physical, spatial desertion that essentially consti constitutes divorce. Remember I said there's no distinction between separation and divorce in Roman law. Uh, this is Enstone Brewer. It says anyone who separated with a view to ending the marriage was considered fully divorced without the need for any written deed or court appearance. There was no contesting a divorce in the Roman world. So the believer is not bound to the marriage in that case. Uh, this means the unbeliever is not enslaved. The Christian is free to remarry in that particular case. Um, uh, so I think those final words I say, God has called us to live in peace, are probably explained in verse 16. The believer should not desperately cling to a marriage that a partner wants to dissolve. He says, verse 16, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? Uh, that's what you hope and you hope for. But if they desert, if they divorce, then the marriage is broken and, and there's no, there might not be any hope. Uh, so you're not... As I say, a Christian wife or husband is not obligated to wait indefinitely to reconcile with a non-Christian spouse who has physically deserted them since the believer has no assurance. And so there's a lot more here I could say about this. 
Because you could have like in a church, here's two Christians and the husband divorces his wife, uh, deserts the marriage. Um, you know, and most of the time then, the husband or the person who deserts, deserts the marriage, we sort of declare them an unbeliever. That is, they, they give no indication of the fact that they deserted the marriage and left means that you know, they, they made a profession of faith, but they're, they're practically, we consider them to be an unbeliever in that particular case because they may they reject Christianity or they don't want anything to do with Christianity or something like that, you know. So they, they may have professed faith at one time, obviously, they may have, but they, they often, what happens often is that one partner leaves the marriage and leaves Christianity too. They just reject uh, they reject any attempt by the pastors of the church to meet with them or talk to them. I mean, I've seen this many times, and they just uh, don't want anything to do with Christianity anymore. So they're, we treat them like an unbeliever. Now, this is something that you don't rush into. I mean, we don't rush into it in this church. If a couple separates, you know, we try to reconcile them and so forth and so on. But over time, it may be obvious that that's not possible, that one person has deserted the marriage and they're not coming back and they got a divorce and, you know, they don't want anything to do with it and there's no, you know, sometimes you hope even if they get a divorce, you could, <laughs> but once they get a divorce after so many months, it's pretty clear that there's usually not much hope anymore for, for that, you know. Uh, so that's, that's the situation we have. So... So that, that's the general, you might say, the Protestant position on divorce. The most common Protestant position on divorce since the Reformation has been divorce for immorality and desertion. Uh, those two particular things are the common ones. That, uh, and those are, there's, there's more involved in those two things than just stating it uh, abruptly like I did. Uh, you, there's other things, but... Those are the two basic reasons that most Protestant Christians have held to. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church, in theory, holds to no divorce, but that's a sham because they got they got annulments. annulments. <laughs> Remember when Governor Engler he he got annulment and married a woman had twins. You remember? You know, he's I'm not want to jump on him, but if you're if you're a powerful enough person, you can get you get your annulment. You know, and you know. You, you know, and you, uh, they issue a lot of annulments. So it becomes like another kind of divorce thing like that. All right, so we're looking at the, the guiding principle in Paul's advice. I say here, Paul's general advice through this chapter is to remain as you are. The Corinthians are seeking to change their present status because they believe that their coming to Christ required change with regard to their marital status. But Paul's understanding is that in most, though not all cases, a Christian can and should maintain the same social situation they were in the time of their conver conversion. These social, social situations, including being married, single, or divorced, do not affect one's new relationship with Christ and His church. We do not become more spiritual by changing our social or marital status. Generally, we should learn, generally, we should learn to be content in the situation we find ourselves 
Concentrate on keeping God's commands, what Paul says is ultimately counts. Now to make his point here, Paul uses two kinds of social settings here. He uses circumcision and he uses slavery. Um, what do circumcision and uncircumcision, slavery and freedom have to do with marriage, divorce, and celibacy? Uh, they illustrate this principle, the divine principle, um, that no earthly, um, no earthly status such as one, one's racial heritage or one's social, social status is incompatible with God's calling us to be Christians. That is, anybody can become a Christian. It doesn't make a difference. Their marital status, their racial status, or any of these things, they're, they're not important for that. Now, this is not an absolute standard. When Paul says, you know, kind of remain as you are, he'll give exceptions. <laughs> he'll give exceptions. He'll say in the case of the slave, if you're a slave and you get saved, okay, be, try to be content with that. But if you can gain your freedom, that's okay. It's okay. Uh, you know, so it's not an absolute thing, that, that these kind of things. But generally, try to be content in the situation where you're at. And we'll see some, some exceptions to that. I'll just mention one. If you're working for a pornogra pornographic magazine, and you get become a Christian, you got to quit. <laughs> but if you're working for Ford, you can work for Ford. You know, you, you don't have to quit Ford uh, because you become a Christian. You know, most jobs you can just continue your job and do your job and so forth. You don't have to change your status or anything. But you know, if, if you're something illegal or immoral, yeah, then that obviously got to change. Uh, so Paul's verse. Uh, 17, he has the first statement of the principle. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. So this refers back, this nevertheless, to verse 15, desertion of the marriage. The brother or sister is not bound in such cases. Nevertheless, change is not to be the rule. So, you know, if you're in a mixed marriage, stay in that mixed marriage. If the unbeliever abandons the marriage and divorces, okay, <clears throat> that's okay, that's, that happens. But it's not something the believing spouse should seek. They should not seek that to try to dissolve the marriage because the Lord wants us to remain in that situation. Even though it seems intolerable, uh, I only know this from talking to people, and I see that it is very tough. One of them gets saved, and the other is just adamantly opposed to that, and, they gotta, and they're living their life with an unbeliever who is just opposed to everything. That's a, that's a hard trial. That's a difficult thing, but that's, you know, that, that's what God has laid out for us, for, for believers, and, and, and God wants us people to work through that as best they can and give them grace to do that. It's not easy. I don't pretend to think it is easy. But it's not a situation where, where one can say, I'm just going to get a divorce and get rid of this kind of thing. That's Paul's point here. 
But it's not an unbreakable rule, as I said. He'll give some exceptions here. So then he gives an application of this principle, which is remain as you are. Uh, was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was he uncircumcised? He should not become circumcised. So he illustrates this thing of being a Jew or, or not being a Jew, you know, being circumcised or not. Um, um, so here's something that, you know, Paul, it's a good illustration of something that people try to give religious significance to. And Paul says uh, they were trying to give religious significance to celibacy. You know, well, uh, celibacy or, you know, is, is, a good, is a better thing, a better state. No, it's not. And here's a religious thing, circumcision or uncircumcision. That doesn't make any difference to being a Christian. As I say, social distinctions are basically rendered of no importance by the gospel. They have no bearing on one's spiritual status. And Jesus Christ, Jew, Greek, together, whether slave or free, make up one body. You remember those verses, we're all baptized into one body. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you all one in Christ Jesus. Um, so uh, that's his first situation. He says in verse 19, a rather, it would seem like a rather strange verse if you think, if you're reading the Old Testament. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. I say this is one of the most amazing sentences Paul ever wrote. How could a Jew argue that circumcision is nothing? Jews have always considered it of primary importance since it marks one out as a member of the covenant community. Remember? The Abrahamic covenant. There it is. God said to Abraham, here's what you're supposed to do. You know, and the Jews still do it today, you know, because it marks them out as part of the Abrahamic community. But here's, here's the Apostle Paul saying, hey, circumcision is nothing. I say, can you imagine Paul saying that to Moses? You know, after, you know, Moses, when he's got this command and all this. Uh, but as I say here, in the New Testament age, Paul makes it clear that circumcision is no longer to be listed as one of God's commands to his people. It's for the nation of Israel, not for the church, in which Jews and Gentiles form a new organism, a new body, the church. I mentioned here, why did Paul not allow Titus to be circumcised? You remember that situation in Galatians 2, Paul goes to Jerusalem. Boy, my battery is low here. Get the note there. <laughs> well, we're almost finished. Um, why did Paul not allow Titus to be circumcised, but he, allowed, but he circumcised Timothy? The most obvious reason is that, in this case, Titus is a Gentile. He's coming down to Jerusalem, and... And he wants to make it clear that uh, Gentiles don't have to be circumcised to be saved. Uh, it's not a legal requirement anymore. But Timothy um, was half Jewish. His mother was a Jew. And if your mother's a Jew, you're a Jew. That's true in Israel today. If you want to immigrate to Israel, your mother better be a Jew. If your father is a Jew, you're not a Jew. 
your father marries a, a Gentile woman, you're not a Jew. If, you're, if, you're, if you have a Jewish mother, you're a Jew. It's through the mother that citizenship is considered. And so um, Timothy is considered a Jew by people around him. And apparently Paul did this because he's taking Timothy with him. He's going into synagogues. He, he doesn't want to cause any disturbance. By, you know, he wants to, Timothy to be accepted. So apparently he's doing this for evangelistic reasons, you know, for ministry reasons. Timothy can go along with Paul. He can be accepted. Uh, it's not for salvation. And it's very clear because he won't allow Titus to be circumcised because he's a Gentile and he has no reason. If, you, if, if, if you're making Titus be circumcised, it's because you think circumcision is necessary for salvation. But he says, keeping God's commands... I say does not include circumcision, but Christians are not obligated to keep the Mosaic law. Remember, Paul says that very clear here. Though I'm free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So Paul says, you know, sometimes I submitted to Jewish ceremonies and other things because I wanted to win Jews. Uh, you know, I didn't eat my ham sandwiches with a bunch of Jews around me because that's offensive to Jews. Yeah, no bacon with, with my Jewish brothers, you know. So, um, but I'm not under the law. I don't, I don't, I myself, I'm not under the law. And so, uh, uh, so Paul uh, does not oppose uh, circumcision in and of itself as long as it's not necessary for salvation in that sense. It's keeping God's commands that what counts and in the New Testament we're not bound by the Old Testament mosaic regulations. Um, so um, Romans 10.4 Christ is the culmination of the law so there are may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Well, it's 8.15, and I think we will stop here for tonight. And uh, thank you for coming. And we will see everybody, Lord willing, next week. All right? Thank you.